in this hour. And in this hour, a conversation um, more expressly. We, we tapped into some of this with Katrina Vandenhoevel from The Nation magazine in our first hour. Kind of went around the edges. But now I want to go right to the, to, the, to the middle, the sweet spot, the epicenter, if you will, uh, of, of this conversation about the UAW strike and the history of U.S. labor movements with an emphasis on the connection to Southern labor and to civil rights. I am honored to have in this conversation a distinguished scholar in African-American and labor history, um, Dr. Michael Honey. He's written two, uh, more than two, but certainly two powerful books that I think will be relevant in uh, this conversation in this hour. One was called Going Down Jericho Road, The Memphis Strike, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last Campaign, and to the promised land, Martin Luther King and the fight for economic justice. Uh, so he knows what he speaks and what he teaches. And I am honored to have Dr. Michael Honey on this program. Dr. Honey, how are you today, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Great to talk to you. No, it's good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad we have an hour to sort of um, to, to unpack this. Let me just start with a couple of broad questions and then we'll narrow as we move through this hour. When you look at this this summer of strikes and the summer is basically over. So I'll call it this season of strikes that we have been in. Uh, broadly speaking, how do you, uh, how do you um, see this, uh, this moment historically, these strikes, we just talked again about the fact that the Hollywood strike, at least on the writer's guild side, seems to be coming to an end with a tentative agreement reached last night. The actors are still out. UAW is expanding its strikes. President Biden, in case you've just tuned in, didn't hear this, has announced he'll be on the picket line historically with um, uh, auto workers tomorrow in Detroit. So all that said, Dr. Honey, um, how do you see this present moment historically when it comes to labor and strikes? Well, it's a great moment of departure, really, uh, ever since, uh, <clears throat> well, really in my lifetime, since the, the Reagan era of the 1980s that you were just talking about and his speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Reagan set off a, a counteroffensive against organized labor that really smashed a lot of the unions, and uh, then in the eight. Uh, in the 1990s, in addition, the, the globalization idea uh, that was so popular among the American, uh, I guess I'll call them the ruling class, the, mm -hmm. the people with the power, the 1%. Uh, whereas unions used to represent about 35% of the workers in the 1950s, now it's down to about 6% of the workers in the United States are in unions which is um, ridiculous and shameful and completely in contrast to other you know, developed capitalist countries where workers have more, much more power. And a lot of it's because the labor laws in the United States are almost useless. Um, the Biden administration is trying to make uh, the NLRB be a more functional thing that really does help workers. But the laws themselves have been eviscerated. And all of this goes back to what my colleague uh, Michael Goldfield calls the Southern Key, which is the resurgence of Southern power, sort of the renewed Confederacy, if you will, after World War II, at a, at a moment, you know, when uh, things could have, it was after a big anti-fascist war, and it was the 1940s was the seed time for the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. as well as the labor movement. But 
through the Republican Party and conservative Democrats, we ended up with the Taft-Hartley Act, which in 1947, which really stripped unions of power. And then the purges of the unions in the 1949, uh, which eliminated some of the uh, almost a million members with the strongest civil rights platforms. And so from there on, uh, you know, it's been a losing, losing battle. What's happened now is that uh, through various rank-and-file movements, mm-hmm. the unions are being uh, reinvigorated. So we wouldn't be seeing this UAW strike if it hadn't been for years and years of work by rank-and-file people trying to democratize the UAW, which before was run by a caucus uh, led by the president of the union and made a lot of bad deals for the workers and the worst of them being uh, in 2007 and 8. Yeah. So so that, that's what they're fighting against. They're mm-hmm. trying to turn the tide. Yeah. And this has happened in the Teamsters, and it's happening among hospital workers. It's happening in Los Angeles, in your area, with the hotel and restaurant workers. Mm-hmm. People are rising up, and yeah. uh, it's uh, the 99% versus the 1%. As yep. People once were saying people are people are rising up, and I think that's a good thing. And we'll talk about that as we move through this hour. But, but when we come forward, I want to come directly to the two points you made a moment ago that I think are worth uh, interrogating. That is uh, why it is, uh, and I've got my own thoughts, but you're the expert here. Why is it uh, the case in the richest nation in the history of the world that workers have so little power as compared to the power that workers have in other nation states? Number one. Number two, why is it the case, and uh, to my earlier point, the richest nation in the history of the world, um, that our laws are so anti-labor? That may that may be the answer, but we'll talk about it. Why are our laws so anti-labor, and why do workers in this power, relatively speaking, have so little power as compared to workers in other nations? Just getting started in this hour, as we drill, drill a little bit deeper uh, into this season, this, uh, this uh, summer of strikes, uh, and make some broader connections to labor movements writ large and to civil rights. We'll get to Dr. King, uh, one of my favorite subjects, of course, and a great deal more as we move through this hour with Dr. Michael Honey on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. More of Dr. Michael Honey coming your way right now, distinguished scholar in African American and labor history. Um, joining us this hour to talk about um, this UAW strike and all these other strikes that are taking place right now, others that are in the offing, uh, but just trying to get a historical context for the moment that we find ourselves in right now beyond what specifically is happening with the UAW or any of, the, any of these other strikes. Uh, but in case, again, you've not heard, President Biden has announced he will be uh, on the picket line tomorrow in Detroit with these uh, striking auto workers. Um, I keep saying historic. It is, Dr. Michael Honey, but let me ask you to frame how you see a sitting U.S. president in Detroit tomorrow on the picket line with striking auto workers. Well, it's a great gesture on Biden's part. He's The president has been saying he's the most pro-labor president in uh, history. That might, might be true, um, but how do you put teeth into that? Mm-hmm. You know, you can be in favor of unions, but how do you actually win how do you win some of these situations 
And you were saying before the break, uh, why is the U.S. so backward on labor issues compared mm-hmm. to other countries? It's, it's two things. One, it's the politics uh, in which the political system really is controlled by the 1% for the most part, and also the, the neo-Confederate people um, of the South, which is now spread to the Midwest and the West, who block any kind of change that would be good for working people. And then secondly, uh, you just you have a media system, for the most part, that, that doesn't pay attention to those mm-hmm. issues. And so the political and economic and media superstructure really goes against uh, organized labor. And yet, as Dr. King would say, uh, being organized is the key to everything mm-hmm. uh, for workers and for uh, African-Americans and other people. And uh, just for, for a moment, I'd like to go back to something King said uh, in 1961. He gave a speech to the AFL-CIO when the unions were strong, mm-hmm. and he made a warning. Uh, he said, a crisis confronts us both, whether it's the ultra-right wing in the form of John Birch Societies or the alliance which former President Eisenhower denounced of the military and big business, or the coalition of Southern Dixiecrats and Northern reactionaries, in whatever form, these menaces now threaten everything decent and fair in American life. Mm. Labor today faces a grave crisis in the next 20 uh, years, and of course it's been beyond that since 61. This period is made to order for those who would seek to drive labor into impotency. And that has has happened. Uh, It's not impotent. We're finding now that uh, labor is not impotent. Well, that's why why King was prophetic. I I, I remind folks all the time, he was not not a politician. Uh, He wasn't just a a personality. He was a prophet. Uh, And in so many ways, King predicted uh, much of what we'd be dealing with today. And that's why I always say to people that I grade all politicians on what I call a Kingian scorecard. My Kingian scorecard is where do you stand on poverty? on racism and on militarism. That, of course, trifecta is the triple threat that King talked about that would threaten our democracy for years to come. Poverty, racism, and militarism. And we could certainly add to that a number of things these days. Um, uh, uh, but but I love, again, that, that, that quote that you shared from Dr. King because it speaks to, again, the ways in which King was um, uh, no mere mortal. <laughs> King was, uh, in many respects, a, a, a prophet. That, that said, let me just ask you, in this contemporary moment, um, even as you understand the history better than most of the U.S. labor movement in this country, um, how in this contemporary moment would you define or describe labor politics? Talk to me about the politics of labor right now. I think we're seeing uh, a kind of a breakthrough. I hope that's what we're seeing among hospital workers, uh, hotel and restaurant workers, graduate students. You had one of the biggest, probably the biggest strike uh, of graduate students in history in California last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, it's spreading beyond what people think of as the old working class. The What King said um, in uh, 1962, he talked about the 1% of the population controlling most of the wealth. Mm-hmm. And this has been something that's been... Uh, Really, uh, it's a shame that he talked about the superfluous wealth of 
people that have so much money that they're they're gagging on it. Uh, mm-hmm. People with $150 billion in assets like Elon Musk, who are completely anti-union. And so, you know, that does not represent your average working class person. Uh, and your average working class person could be like me, a college professor, uh, or it could be somebody working in the hotels. It's a lot of us. Mm-hmm who are in that 90% of the population that need uh, organization. And unions aren't all that we need, but unions are crucial. And so having such a low rate of unionization in the United States, and especially in the South, uh, is that's one of the things that's holding us back. So we're having a moment where we think, ah, maybe things are going to shift now. Yep. I asked you earlier, um, I said I wanted to ask you, you went ahead and, and responded, I'm glad you did, about why our laws in this country are so anti-union. And the short answer, to paraphrase what you said, uh, to put in my own language, what you said is that Washington is bought and bossed by big money and big business. That's the answer. Our, our laws are anti-union because Washington is bossed and bought by big money and big business. The other question I want to get to that I posed earlier, though, uh, and they're not disconnected, but I want to just give you a chance to drill down on it, which is why workers in this country have so little power uh, as compared to workers in other nations. Uh, I think there's a number of, you know, big reasons for that. Uh, one is the sort of mythology of the United States that everybody can do well as an individual instead of as a group, as mm-hmm. part of an organization. Uh, and that's part of the American mythology, and a lot of people um, buy into that. Mm. A second, second thing is racism. That mm. uh, this has been used to split working class people since the days of slavery, and we're struggling with that. W. E. B. Du Bois talked about it. That after the Civil War, uh, we needed to reconstruct the South by a, a labor movement that was interracial. He was very. Uh, tuned in to uh, the labor movement when he was writing Black Reconstruction in the 1930s. And, and that's still a, a lot of the equation. Where, mm-hmm. uh, and we're seeing it, you know, with gun violence and racial uh, intimidation and uh, police brutality, all those things down the line. The working class in this country is multiracial, multi, multi-ethnic, uh, it's women and men, it's gay and straight. We we need to be organized as a group with some identity uh, of that. And racism and sexism and these other isms really mm-hmm. undermine that significantly in the United States. Yep. Tell me more. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated now. This is getting good to me. Uh, take me inside uh, your classroom. I know you teach this stuff, of course, every day. And I don't, I'm, I'm not asking for anything in particular. I just want to learn right quick, as does the audience. Uh, tell me more. Uh, give me a bit more about the intersection historically in this country of race and labor. Take me to that intersection and just tell me something I don't know. Well, you probably do know, but it's, uh, you know, throughout the history of this country, uh, particularly I'll go to the period after the Civil War, mm-hmm. there have been efforts to unite workers across uh, racial lines and women and men and to people to think of themselves as working people who have their interests in common uh, around class. And, of course, the 1% people that tend to run the society are to- go totally against that. And so we've always had that struggle that we're, 
running upstream, uh, even though the majority of the people are working people. Uh, as King said, you know, the interests of the black community and the labor community should be the same. They mm-hmm. are the same. But actually, in the history of unions, uh, a lot of unions were used to keep black people out of jobs. So, you know, if you split the workers along racial lines, then you can really weaken the whole struggle for economic and social justice. I'm from Michigan originally, and, you know, we saw this a lot in Detroit, where my parents and grandparents are from, where uh, black and white workers had all these interests in common, but we had race riots in 1943, the worst mm-hmm. white race riot almost in our history. Uh, and it was around people getting separated and, and con- conflicting and competing groups instead of working together. And that's what racism does. It sets white folks up to think that somehow they're better than other people and mm. they're not going to organize together mm. with those other people. In fact, they're going to organize to keep them out. Mm. And I th- I think that's breaking down now. Um, as Nelson Lichtenstein, the labor historian, said yesterday that the the working class today in the United States is not the white male worker that we used to think of, you know, as this is the union worker, it's a white male. No longer. Yeah. The, the working class is multiracial. Women are very much in the leadership. You see that in this UAW strike, mm-hmm. and you see it in the other strikes, that uh, it's it's much more representative of the working class, I think, than yeah. what we've seen before. You mentioned earlier in this dialogue uh, media, the role of media uh, in this um, in this process, this uh, process of of uh, uh, this notion rather of U.S. labor. Uh, and I'm curious as to what your indictment is of my profession. I, I, I don't I, I want to know why you link those two things, but I, I sense that there's an indictment of the role that media has played uh, in this labor movement. Well, pretty much anything that I, in my lifetime, which is since 1947, uh, I, I tune into uh, radio programs like yours or uh, reading well-documented uh, newspapers, magazines mm-hmm. like The Nation, like you just had sure. Katrina Vanden Heubel. Um, but most people don't. And in fact, large numbers of people have no idea what's going on. And then you have the Fox News phenomenon covering about maybe a third of the population of people who watch uh, the television who are just misinformed day after day. Mm. And it's it's become a real poison. And so, you know, that, that media structure also has to be changed. And I don't know the answer to that. You have a better idea than I do. No, I, I just wanted to get your take on it since you since you mentioned it. Um, you used a phrase earlier in this dialogue, and I want to get to I want to talk more about King when we come forward here um, uh, moments from now. But you you mentioned this moment that we are in this summer of strikes, this season of strikes, as a moment of departure. That was your phrase, a moment of departure. I'm I'm wondering if you really see it <clears throat> if you really see it as a moment of departure, and if so, what you mean by that specifically, or whether or not. It's a it's a, it's an outlier moment, and I, I it, and it may be that it's too soon to tell, um, but there is evidence that suggests that we may be in a moment of departure. Uh, but again, at this stage, uh, it, it may be best to call it an outlier. Uh, but you tell me. Well, that's 
like predicting the future, which who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, none of us know that. It's like the whole election uh, cycle that we're in, you know, where things could go way better or they could go way worse. Mm -hmm. So I really wouldn't predict, except that one thing I would say about the departure is that if you take a major union like the United Auto Workers Union that was two years ago uh, caught up in corruption scandals and sort of taken over by the courts for a while and... Uh, there's a democratic movement within the union over years and years. Finally, you end up with a union leadership that represents more of the, the, how the workers in, in that industry really feel. Mm -hmm. And the black women as part of the leadership, it's, it is a different moment for the UAW. Now, that doesn't mean that's true for all the unions, but I think you can see that happening uh, in many different yeah. industries. I, I, so I, I, that... To me, that's a departure. Yeah. Are there ways in which historically, when we see moments like these, where unions flex, they, Dr. King uh, used to always say that uh, a man can only ride your back when it's bent. And when you straighten up your back, you're going somewhere. Uh, historically, in moments like these, uh, where we see unions, we see workers stand up. Does it have a residual effect? Put another way, does it, does it catch on? Well, let's hope so. Uh, you know, that we've had some periods of upsurge since um, the economic crisis of 2007 and 2008, mm -hmm. where we had the Occupy movement. We've had uh, student organizing at University of Washington and other campuses. Uh, I think it has legs. What's mm -hmm. going on isn't happening on its own. It's It's part of a general, and especially among younger people, Yeah, I think that the things that are facing us today and facing young people especially about uh, the global crisis that we're in and having these politicians like in the Republican Party who mm -hmm. have no intention of fixing anything. Uh, they're more into holding things as they, as have, they, been. As they have been. Yeah. Status quo, status quo, status quo. That's always the problem that you can't get people off of. Uh, the status quo in uh, trying to advance um, uh, our politics and be more progressive in their thinking. When we come forward with Dr. Michael Honey, I'm going to go straight inside these two books that I'm fascinated to to, um, to interrogate. Going Down Jericho Road, The Memphis Strike, Martin Luther King's Last Campaign, and To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. You're listening to Michael Honey on Tavis Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Our guest is Dr. Michael Honey. Uh, he is a distinguished scholar in African American and labor history, uh, and uh, we've had him on. Or we have him on this hour, I should say. Have had him on for the first thirty minutes. Uh, thirty minutes more to go here, um, talking about the history of U.S. labor uh, and uh, the emphasis it emphasis it has to Southern labor and civil rights. And it seems to me that one cannot talk about uh, the labor movement in this country. Certainly. Um, where black folk are concerned without talking specifically uh, about a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. And so I, I love your text, Going Down Jericho Road, The Memphis Strike, uh, uh, Martin Luther King's Last Campaign. And let me just ask you, again, some broad questions. I can narrow it uh, once you uh, start to unpack this for me. And, and that is what some of the takeaways are um, for you uh, in uh, your your text, Go Down Jericho Road, about 
King and the Memphis strike all these years ago? Well, you know, we were talking a little while ago about a departure, a moment of departure, mm-hmm. and I think 1968 was that, and it was a departure in some really bad ways, the killing of uh, King and Robert Kennedy and the election of Richard Nixon. Things really turned for the worse, uh, which was worse than we probably could have expected, and the Vietnam War escalated instead of somebody trying to bring it to an end. But if I go back for a minute with King, uh, I've got a a book that people might like also. It's called All Labor Has Dignity. It's a book of King's labor speeches. Mm. And until I found these speeches at the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, I didn't know there were labor speeches by King. And I found this huge cage of speeches um, that he had given to all kinds of unions across the country, but especially to the ones that had a strong civil rights program. So I put those speeches together, and uh, recently the International Labor Organization bought 300 copies of them from Beacon Press, and they're giving them out to people around the world. But um, Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, has also been giving them out in Congress, and I've been speaking to his congressional interns and so forth. And the the real thread in, in that book that I like is for people to understand King in a larger dimension, uh, you know, it used to be people would just say he was a civil rights leader. Well, we've kind of gone beyond that. Mm-hmm. I think people see him more as a human rights leader now. But oftentimes they don't talk about the labor issues. So, for instance, there's a new book on King that's a fabulous book. It's 600 and some pages. It says almost nothing about labor and yet, King was a real ally to the unions, and, uh, you know, the Martin Luther King Day events uh, are honored by unions, but also the April 4th date when King was killed. And there's a reason. Uh, he, in 1965, talked about the need to go to the second phase of the Civil Rights Movement, the mm-hmm. first phase being the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. But he said, now we need to go to phase two, which is to economic equality. And in some of these speeches to unions, he talked about two Americas, one of the rich and the well-off and the other poor people on a lonely island of poverty, including people who work, the working poor. And so that's what he was doing in Memphis. He was talking not only about uh, poor people without jobs, but people who had jobs but were living in poverty. Most of the sanitation workers actually have, well, not most, but half of them were on uh, welfare because they Mm -hmm. didn't make enough money to live, Mm -hmm. even though they were working 60-hour weeks. And so when he came to Memphis, he was fulfilling a promise to organized workers across the board, and he was, as part of his Poor People's Campaign, people said, oh, you really can't go to Memphis, you'll get caught up in another battle, and it'll undermine the Poor People's Campaign. He said, how can I not go to Memphis? Mm -hmm. This is the working poor taking up the struggle themselves. I have to go to Memphis to support them. And so then, you know, the rest of it is history, as they say, Uh, but... We have to remember, with the tragedy of King being killed in Memphis, that without King, they would have, I'm sure, lost that strike. And he put himself on the line that way for working people and poor people all the time. Uh, And he could have been killed in some other Mm -hmm. uh, 
terrain. Uh, in these last two speeches, uh, March 18th, when he first came to Memphis, and April 3rd, the night before he was killed, he sort of left uh, an agenda for us that, first of all, the issue is not only racism, but it's economic equality, that we have to build a movement that that is inclusive, that changes the American landscape so that uh, working people, and especially black people and other people of color, can uh, have efficacy. He says, we can all get more together than we can apart. We can get more organized together than we can apart. This is the way we gain power. What is power? Walter Ruther said once that power is the ability of a labor union like the UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it wants to say no. Mm-hmm. no. <laughs> so this was, you know, his King's legacy is not only all the human rights issues, but also the labor rights nope. issues. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you pointed that out, and I'm so glad that uh, um, that that text of yours I do not have, so i got to get a copy of it myself, um, the text of King's labor speeches. I, that I don't have in my library, so I'll make sure I get a copy of that. But 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 that said, I, I've always been fascinated, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this. I've always been fascinated by how connected, how em, uh, empathic King was when it came to workers uh, and laborers, um, even though he came from a middle-class, upper-middle-class background, he knew nothing of poverty growing up. He, he, that's not the world he grew up in. And yet um, it's rare that people who, uh, and I wouldn't say King was born with a silver spoon in his mouth per se, but it's rare that people that grow up in those kinds of um, environments can end up being as empathetic and as connected to everyday people as King was uh, on the labor front. How, how, how do you read that? I think it's really part of his heritage. It's part of the black social gospel that mm-hmm. King followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benjamin Mays at Morehouse College, sure. where King went to school. His father, who was a sharecropper's uh, son, who went to Atlanta with, with uh, nothing in his pocket and uh, ended up you know, developing a large black church. Mm-hmm. Um, King's uh, great-grandfather was a slave, and he came from that southern slavery and economic injustice, Jim Crow framework. And even though he grew up in what we'd call a middle-class household, that area around where his home is, uh, if, I think even if you go today, I haven't been there for a while, but it's it's mostly not it's pretty poor and it was really poor in the 1930s. Yeah. So even though his family was doing all right, he could see day to day that other people were not doing nope. all right. You're right about that. And Auburn Ave, you've not been there a while, but Auburn Ave is um, is on the come up. I mean, there are you know, gentrification is real in Atlanta and everywhere else these days. Um, so it's not exactly the way it looked when King was there, but um, I take your point about that. You're absolutely correct. Uh, our guest is Dr. Michael Honey. More when we come forward in this conversation uh, about the fight for economic justice, specifically King at the moment, at least, and the fight for economic justice. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. 
Michael Honey, um, uh, let me let me just ask you how you would define. Uh, I've written a book about Dr. King, as this audience knows, a book called Death of a King, specifically specific, specifically that is, if I can say it, about the last year in his life, from April 4, 67, when he gives that speech, uh, uh, the Beyond Vietnam speech uh, at Riverside Church, to April 4, 68, when they kill him in Memphis. So the book focuses just on the last year. Um, but but I'm wondering how you would describe or define King's journey uh, on this fight for economic justice. That's not where he started. It's where he ended, but not where he started. How would you define his journey? Well, you know, uh, that's why I chose that title, Going Down Jericho Road, for mm-hmm. the book about Memphis, that King uh, often referred to the uh, the you know, the person going down Jericho Road who was besieged by danger on all sides, mm-hmm. uh, the Good Samaritan who was of a different race, so, you know, a different group than the dominant group, and the person by the side of the road was part of the dominant group, mm-hmm. but he stopped anyway to save this person's life. Other people just passed by, and he used that uh, story, that parable, all the time. And he, it was one of the things he said in his very last speech uh, in Memphis on April 3rd, that people have to, and this is the social gospel at work, that people put themselves in a position where they're doing something for somebody else, and that becomes more important maybe than doing something for yourself. Even. Yes, yes. And so in that speech he gave... A, impromptu speech at 11 o'clock at night on April 3rd, he said, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And if you just take that one idea, dangerous unselfishness and King's life and how he applied that, you get the whole story about what it's about and what he thought a good life was, mm. uh, even if your life might be shortened by that. But And that's really... that message is something that if people would pick it up seriously in the United States today, I think we'd see things start to move in a way better direction. No, that is the phrase for the day, a dangerous unselfishness. Every one of us should be engaged in a dangerous unselfishness in the lives that we're living and the legacies that we are living. Uh, Our remaining moments with Dr. Michael Honey when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Some people may fresh daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Our guest is Dr. Michael Honey. Our remaining moments with him right now. We've been talking in this hour, in case you've just tuned in, about this UAW strike, of course, uh, and the history of U.S. labor movements um, and uh, really focusing more on the history. We spent uh, the first hour uh, of today's show talking a bit more about the strike uh, in real time. Uh, you probably know by now, I keep repeating that uh, President Joe Biden historically will be on the uh, on the picket line tomorrow. Of course, we'll talk about that in the first hour of tomorrow's program. Uh, pretty easy to know where we're going tomorrow since the president will be making this historic move 
uh, to join a picket line with these workers. So that'll be, uh, I'm sure, at the top of our docket uh, tomorrow. But I wanted to spend some time in this hour with Dr. Honey, given that he's a distinguished scholar in African-American and labor history, uh, talking just uh, about the history of the labor movement and, and, and certainly the African-American uh, connection to it. Um, uh, one final question, maybe one or two more final questions about Dr. King here. Um, we talked a moment ago about his journey uh, fighting for economic justice. Um, those Memphis uh, strikers, for those who don't know the story, uh, did um, did advance uh, the issues that mattered to them, just as we saw the writers advance their narrative here in Hollywood last night. We will see what comes in the what happens in the coming days with the UA, with the UAW strike. But let me go back to King right quick in Memphis. Um, what did ultimately happen for those who don't recall it, and how uh, how how, uh, how how vitally important was King's involvement, uh, assassinated nonetheless, uh, to the ultimate outcome. Well, the strike uh, had been going on for about a month and a half, I believe. It started on February 10th, and he was killed on April 4th. Mm -hmm. And when he came on March 18th, the the strike was kind of flagging, and partly it was because they weren't getting national publicity. And so that's why Reverend James Lawson asked him to come to Memphis, Mm -hmm. was put the spotlight on the strike. And wherever King went, it, it, the, the media tended to follow. And so <clears throat> when he came on March 18th, uh, it was totally unprepared. He just walked into a huge gathering of people at, at Mason Temple, Temple and uh, gave a brilliant speech. And he called for a general strike. And I thought, thinking back about King, that only somebody who was really in touch with unions for more than 10 years as part of his ministry even going back to the Montgomery bus boycott, where he had strong support from unions, and pretty much everything he did after that, getting support from a lot of unions, only somebody like that would would even think to call a general strike of all the working people in Memphis in support of the Memphis sanitation strike. And so he raised things up to a whole new level when he did that. And for the civil rights movement, it was like a, a new moment, really, from social and uh, civil rights to economic justice. And so I think he he left that legacy uh, very, very important. And a lot of unions and other people today support King on the April 4th as well as on yeah. January 15th yeah. to understand the legacy of that and the importance of that. And, and one last thing is sure. his Jericho Road uh, analogy is that Anybody can participate in this movement to make the world a better place. I'm working a lot with Reverend James Lawson and other people in California. The Senate in California passed a resolution to teach nonviolence in K-12 through sure. in schools. So I don't know if you know about that, but I you do. might want to pick up on that. I know about it well. I was just with James Lawson the other day. As a matter of fact, you mentioned his name, James Lawson. On Friday, turned 95 years of age, uh, and there was a huge celebration here in Los Angeles where he lived. When he left Memphis, uh, he came to Los Angeles to be the pastor of Holman United Methodist Church. He's lived there for all these years uh, since leaving Memphis after the assassination of Dr. King and that uh, Memphis sanitation worker strike. To your point, he's the one that called King to ask King to come to Memphis, and that troubled him for years. For years, he was troubled by the fact that he was the guy who invited King to come to Memphis to lead the strike, and King ends up being assassinated in 
his then city of, of, of Memphis. But he's been here in L.A. for decades, turned 95 on, on Friday, so happy uh, 95th birthday belated uh, to Dr. Uh, to Reverend Dr. James Lawson. Uh, and, uh, again, a great deal of celebration in the city. As a matter of fact, the city um, passed a resolution to uh, every year uh, name a day after him in honor of James Lawson. So it was a big deal for him last week on the occasion of his 95th birthday, since you mentioned his name. Uh, for now, we thank Dr. Michael Honey, uh, distinguished scholar in African-American and labor history, for joining us in this hour to talk about uh, the history of the labor movement. And uh, you take black folk out of the experiment in America, as I say all the time, and it falls flat, <laughs> including King and the labor movement, but I digress for now. Dr. Honey, good to have you on. All the best to you, sir. Take, take care of yourself. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine.